Hello, and welcome back to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas. And each week, I'm going to watch one of the 94 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. You can count on me to use the same template every week. The basic details of the movie, things like who's in it, what's it all about, and then I'm going to answer three important questions. One, does it stand the test of time? Two, is it Oscar worthy? Three, should you watch it? Or was your last root canal more pleasurable? Just as a friendly warning, along with my honest assessment of these movies, you're also going to get my hot takes on many current events, all the things that piss me off, and I mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Simply put, if fussing and cussing ain't your thing, you picked the wrong damn podcast. Before we begin, I would like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. And with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is The Godfather Part 2. It was released December 20th, 1974. It is directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, Talia Shire, and once again, a really impressive group of supporting actors. It was nominated for a total of 11 Oscars, and it won six. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Dramatic Score. If you want to watch it, once again, this is one of those that I cannot find for free unless you are a Spectrum cable subscriber. And even then, I'm not sure if that version is edited for TV. So if you want to watch it in its full theatrical glory, you're going to need to pay a couple bucks, $3.99 to rent it from Amazon, Redbox, or Vudu, like all the usual streaming services. So what is it about? (laughs) In all honesty, this is essentially two movies in one. The runtime is three hours and 20 minutes, so I'm not kidding. It really is two for the price of one. The two different stories are set several decades apart, and it bounces back and forth between the two. One story is the continuation of where the first Godfather movie left off. It continues to focus on Michael Corleone's continued rise in power and his glory as the dawn of his family. The other story takes us back in time to when his father, Vito, was a child first coming to America and takes us up to the point where Vito first became a notorious crime boss in New York City. For today's purposes, it's easier to detail them for you as two distinct stories. So we start in 1901 in Corleone, Sicily. Young Vito, who was actually born Vito Andolini, is the lone survivor after his family is killed by the local mafia boss, Don Siccio. His father and older brother are murdered, and then Vito's mother visits Siccio and begs him to let Vito live, as he's just a boy. The Don informs her they will come for Vito, as little boys grow up to be men who seek vengeance. Just a tiny bit of foreshadowing there. Boy, did he have Vito pegged. Siccio kills Vito's mother in front of him, and the boy barely escapes with his life. A kind and very brave neighbor helps smuggle young Vito out of town 
and onto a ship bound for America. Vito is nine years old when he arrives alone at Ellis Island. He speaks no English and, in fact, can't tell the immigration officers his full name. There's a slight mix-up between his name and his place of birth, so he ends up being officially labeled Vito Corleone. We fast forward to Vito at age 26. He is played by Robert De Niro. He's married with one infant child, a boy named Sonny. He's essentially minding his own business, working hard, blending in with the other kind of non-English speaking immigrants, just trying to eke out enough of a living to feed his wife and child. He becomes aware of the neighborhood crime boss, Don Finucci, largely because Finucci is extorting Vito's employer. Finucci's MO is to bully and threaten the neighborhood business owners into paying him large portions of their income each week. They all live in such a constant fear that they are willing to do any and all favors for Finucci, and this finally lands at Vito's door. His employer is forced to not only hand over such a large cut to Finucci, but also to employ Finucci's nephew, forcing him to release Vito from employment. He just can't afford to keep him on any longer. Vito befriends a neighbor named Peter Clemenza, played by a young Bruno Kirby. And this is great casting. I'm I'm so used to seeing Bruno Kirby in great comedies like City Slickers and When Harry Met Sally. So I guess I had no idea that he'd done such great work in this movie. Corleone and Clemenza start to do small-time crimes together. They add a third partner, Salvatore Tessio, and the group begins to make a fair amount of income stealing goods from unsuspecting marks and reselling them door-to-door. We know from the first Godfather movie that Clemenza and Tessio remain at Vito's side as valuable members of the Corleone family well into old age. Meanwhile, Vito's family is growing. They have now welcomed Fredo, Michael, and Connie, and he's making enough money to ensure his family is taken care of. His enterprising business techniques capture the attention of Don Finucci, who, of course, comes for his share of the profits. He's expecting a really big cut, and the guys aren't so eager to hand it over. Vito convinces the other two that he can negotiate with Finucci and get him to take a much lower amount. Now, they're skeptical, but they agree to let Vito try. Vito tells them, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. (laughs) We all know what that means. Vito meets with Finucci, and it goes just as you would expect. Finucci is stunned by the audacity of this young man, offering him far less than is expected. But he also admits that Vito is a ballsy young man and gives him a little bit of that smug, keep it up, kid, you'll go far speech before he pinches Vito's cheek like he's a small child. In that moment, Finucci made the mistake of being a condescending prick. And Vito doesn't much care for condescending pricks. By the time Finucci arrives back to his apartment, Vito is waiting for him, and he shoots him in the head. (laughs) Word spreads, and it doesn't take long before people around the neighborhood start to show Vito their thanks for freeing them from Finucci's stranglehold. Pretty soon, Vito has gained the reputation as the neighborhood enforcer. People start to come to him for favors, and business owners are now willing to pay him for his protection and partnership. Vito opens an olive oil business in partnership with Clemenza and Tessio. They are now running a seemingly legit storefront business, but still cashing in on not-so-legitimate enterprises as well. In 1923, Vito takes his family on a visit to Sicily. They tour the local olive oil production sites, and eventually he ends up at the home of the now very elderly Don Siccio, 
the man responsible for killing Vito's entire family when he was a child. Of course, Siccio is not familiar with the name Vito Corleone, so he's not at all on guard. He just simply believes this is a nice Italian businessman from New York who's looking to expand his olive oil business and has come to seek his blessing and advice. Vito mentions he's from Corleone, and when Siccio asks his father's name, Vito leans in very close and says, My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's not what happens. I crack myself up. But what does happen is that Vito stabs Siccio to death and avenges his family. Now let's move forward in time to the other half of the story, the continued rise of Michael Corleone. It's 1958, and Michael is living with his family on an impressive estate in Lake Tahoe. They have expanded their footprint into Las Vegas and Reno, as well as having a few select Corleone captains running the business interests in New York. The family is celebrating the first communion of Michael's son, Anthony. It is a lavish celebration with hundreds of guests, elaborate decorations, and a full orchestra. Once again, we see several party attendees anxiously awaiting to pay their respects to Don Corleone. One of the guests at the party is a U.S. Senator from Nevada named Pat Geary. Tom Hagen has arranged for the Senator and Michael to have this business meeting, and we watch as this Senator makes his best attempt to strong-arm Michael. At this point, the Corleones own a couple of hotel properties in Vegas and Reno, but are looking to buy another, larger property, which means they would need to transfer the liquor license, a process that would normally cost about twenty grand. But Senator Geary informs Michael that he'll put a stop to the entire thing unless he is paid $250,000 plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Not just of the new hotel, but he wants a piece of all four. He outright says that it's his intention to squeeze Michael, adding, I don't like your kind of people, and then goes on a short rant about all the distasteful qualities of Italian Americans, particularly like those in the Corleone family. You can imagine how well this goes over. Michael remains very calm, and tells the senator that he'll get nothing. The senator chuckles as he walks away, oblivious to the fact that he's just been added to the shit list. And it isn't going to work out well for that senator in the long run. Another person who comes to ask Michael for favors is Frank Pentangeli. He's one of the Corleone captains overseeing part of the New York business. Frank is an interesting cat. I think it's best to describe him as old school. He's one of those classic leg breaker kind of mob guys. Violence is the answer to everything, whereas Michael is far more nuanced. Michael is moving the business toward more legitimate means, and in doing so, he needs politicians, lawyers, and businessmen to advance his agenda. Having these older guys on the team, these guys who just want to run around shooting everybody, seems to be almost embarrassing for him. Frank is very boisterous, and his drunken antics are gaining steam as the party goes on because he feels Michael isn't rolling out the red carpet for him. The food, the music, the people. Frank feels it's all a big departure from the life of Italian New Yorkers and is behaving as if Michael Corleone is some sort of sellout. Not exactly the polite behavior you should exhibit just prior to asking Michael for his help. Frank feels his territory in the Bronx is being threatened by the Rosado brothers, who work for a Jewish mob boss named Hyman Roth. Roth is played by Lee Strasberg, and he's a pivotal player in Michael's upcoming business ventures. 
So of course, Michael does not want to risk the relationship with Roth by giving Frank permission to go after the Rosado brothers. Frank feels he's being left out in the cold, that Michael is siding with the Jew over his loyal Italian family, and he unleashes a verbal tirade on Michael. And I'm watching, my jaws dropped because I can't believe that anyone would have the audacity to treat Don Corleone with such blatant disrespect. It's made abundantly clear that Frank has an axe to grind, and he's not going to go away so quietly. We also see Connie Corleone make an appearance at the party. Since we last saw her, that sweet young woman stuck in an abusive marriage, she has done an absolute 180. (laughs) She's been running around the world, covered in diamonds and furs, living the lavish lifestyle of a rich divorcee, attracting the wrong kind of men, and leaving her children behind to be cared for by Grandma Corleone. She's arrived at the party to announce to Michael that she plans to marry Merle, a freeloading idiot of a man who Michael says doesn't care about her and is just using her for her money, or at least the money Michael has been providing to her and that she's now run out of. After a short argument, Michael invites Connie to come back into the fold to join the family on his estate, live there with her kids, and he'll take really good care of her. The only condition is that she needs to dump Merle. But Connie chooses what she thinks is love and leaves her family behind. The party is coming to a close, but not before we see Michael and Kay on the dance floor discussing their future. We find out that Kay is pregnant with their third child, both of them hoping it's a son, and Kay reminds Michael of a promise he made years ago that the Corleone family would be fully legitimate by now, and he has failed to deliver on his promise. Another strong case of foreshadowing, put a pin in this, we'll come back to it. There's an old saying that goes, It's not a party until something gets broken. In this case, it's every window of Michael and Kay's bedroom when two assassins fire dozens of rounds at Michael as he's getting ready for bed. He escapes harm, but he naturally suspects there's a traitor within the family. Michael must immediately depart his home and doesn't tell anyone other than Tom Hagen where he's going. Tom is made the de facto Don in Michael's absence. He heads to Miami to secretly meet with Hyman Roth. Now he suspects that it was Roth who planned the assassination, but he lies to Roth and tells him he suspects it was Frank Pentangeli who tried to kill him. Then Michael heads to New York to meet with Frank. He orders Frank to make peace with the Rosado brothers. He wants to give Roth the illusion that their partnership is still strong as ever and that he doesn't suspect a thing. Frank, being a loyal foot soldier, tries to extend an olive branch only to have the Rosados attempt to kill him. It's not a good week for Frank. Meanwhile, back in Nevada, Tom Hagen is called to a brothel in Carson City, which is run by Fredo. Remember Fredo? The hapless brother Fredo? Idiot brother Fredo? Yep, they let him run a brothel. And at this brothel, you'll never guess who woke up from a blackout to discover a dead prostitute in bed with him. Yep, it's Senator Pat Geary, who would likely go down for murder until Tom steps in and makes him an offer he can't refuse. Now, the very same guy who tried to blackmail Don Corleone is forever in his debt. Michael next travels to Havana, Cuba with Hyman Roth and several of their business partners. They have managed to make many successful business deals with the cooperation of the Cuban government. This unfettered access and in many cases funding approved by Cuban President Batista, it appears they are about to have an extraordinarily lucrative partnership. Michael is a bit leery of the revolutionaries who are attempting to overthrow the government, and he worries that the deals won't go through if they are successful. 
It's because of this that Michael is slow in handing over his portion of the seed money to Hyman. Fredo is tasked to come to Cuba to bring him the $2 million that Michael has promised to Hyman Roth. Up to this point, Michael believes he's the only one who's been in contact with Roth and his right-hand man, Johnny Ola. Until Fredo gets a little too drunk and accidentally brags to others about he and Ola club hopping in Havana. It's at that very moment that Michael realizes it's Fredo who is the rat. He immediately orders hits on both Ola and Roth, but his enforcer only succeeds in killing Ola. He's caught in the act as he's trying to smother Roth and is shot to death. That same night, President Batista abdicates his leadership as the rebels take over Cuba. In the midst of all the chaos, both Michael and Fredo separately escape from Cuba and make it back to the U.S. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., a Senate committee has launched an investigation into organized crime, particularly the Corleone family. Frank Pentangeli agrees to testify against Michael, believing incorrectly that he was betrayed and that it was Michael that had something to do with the Rosados trying to kill him. Frank's bodyguard, a guy by the name of Chichi, was also nearly killed by the Rosados. He testifies first and tells the Senate committee that he has killed on behalf of Michael Corleone. But there were never any orders that came directly from him. There was always a middleman giving the orders. So basically, the Senate is trying to figure out if Michael Corleone is this bad dude who's ordering hits. Chi-Chi goes, oh, yeah, 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 I, I kill people all the time. But when they try to connect Chi-Chi directly to Michael, they can't because there's always a middleman who's giving the instruction. What this does is it drastically increases the importance of Frank's upcoming testimony because he's the middleman. He can swear that Michael has lied under oath. They need Frank to corroborate Chi-Chi's testimony. Of course, Frank is in the witness protection program, so there's no way any of the Corleones can get to him to either talk sense into him or have him killed so he can't testify. Michael and Fredo reunite in Nevada. Fredo admits that he knew Roth and Ola and had been somewhat in cahoots with them, but had no idea they were planning to kill Michael. And this is where Fredo sort of loses his shit as well telling Michael that he's tired of being led by his younger brother and he's always treated as the stupid one and he resents Michael how he's running the business and he thinks he can do it so much better. So Michael decides he's going to disown Fredo. He doesn't have time for this jealous incompetent fool who has become a complete loose cannon. Fredo is cut out of the businesses. He can't enter the hotels and he must give at least one day notice before coming to see their mother so Michael has time to leave. He stops short of getting rid of Fredo altogether when he orders his team that he not be harmed as long as their mother is alive. When it comes time for Pintangeli to testify in court, he notices his brother, whom Michael has flown in from Sicily, sitting in the crowd. I'm not sure if it's guilt or fear or pride or he doesn't want to soil his good family name or he's afraid harm will come to his brother. Whatever. I don't know the reason. Pentangeli retracts his previous testimony given in deposition and refuses to indict Michael for any involvement in organized crime. The Senate's case against Don Corleone falls apart. Kay, becoming ever more disillusioned with Michael's lifestyle, tells him she's going to leave and take the kids. If that's not enough of a blow, she admits that the baby she had been carrying, the one Michael was told she miscarried, was actually 
aborted. She was so disgusted with the corrupt life her husband lives that she couldn't bear to bring another one of his sons into this world. And of course, that doesn't go over well. The next thing we know, Kay is gone. But surprise, Michael manages to keep custody of his kids. Mama Corleone dies soon after, which brings both Connie and Fredo back home. Connie patches up things with Michael, and now that both Carmela and Kay are gone, Connie realizes that Michael needs her to run the household. She tries to get him to forgive Fredo, and although it looks as if the brothers have made up, it's not long after that that Michael has one of his enforcers kill Fredo during a fishing trip. As the movie winds down, we see Michael wrapping up all the loose ends. He sends Rocco to kill Hyman Roth, so he's out of the picture. Then Hagen goes to visit Frank Pentangeli, who's in FBI custody still, and they discuss how, in Roman times, those who failed in their plots against the emperor often committed suicide in return for their family receiving clemency. Pentangeli takes the hint, and he's later found dead in his bathtub from having slit his wrists. We end with Michael Corleone sitting alone in a room, staring out at the lake. All of his enemies have been vanquished. Question one. Does The Godfather Part 2 stand the test of time? Yes. And as I mentioned last week, the themes of family, business, and vengeance all mixed together will always be appealing. And this is pretty much a timeless classic. What's really cool about this movie is that it spans multiple time frames. So it goes from 1901 to what I think is roughly the late 50s or early 60s. I say that with a question mark at the end because I don't know. And the way it's shot makes each of those times very distinguishable from each other. So the old timey New York City scenes have that look. You know what I'm talking about. It's that dusty, orangish haze that we've become really familiar with when we're watching older movies. And then fast forward to the scenes particularly the Senate committee hearings and the way those are shot. They are so real looking. It's as if this trial really existed and someone took archival news footage and inserted it into the movie. Like if you've seen Forrest Gump or JFK, they took actual archival film footage and they dropped it into the movie. And that's what this looks and feels like. It's shot completely different than any other scenes in the movie almost to intentionally make it feel like you're watching the trial on the nightly news. I said it earlier that it's two whole movies in one, and the impeccable attention to detail is mesmerizing. You're talking about two different casts, completely different costume designs. You're talking about cars, clothes, homes, everything set decades apart, yet bounce back and forth woven together so perfectly. The character development, especially when we're seeing how young Vito made his way in New York City and grew to be a man of great prominence, is so well told and brilliantly acted. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? Yes, of course it is. The other films nominated that year were Chinatown, Lenny, The Towering Inferno, and The Conversation, which coincidentally is another film written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. He literally had two of his movies nominated for Best Picture in the same year. This is actually a really tough year in this category. Both Chinatown and The Godfather were nominated for 11 awards. I can't speak to the conversation, but the rest of these are definitely worthy of taking home the top award. My guess is that people loved the original Godfather, then to have the second one that's 
arguably even better. I think it was too much of a juggernaut to overcome. Chinatown probably gave it a good run, but my guess is that it had just too much momentum. Robert De Niro won for Best Supporting Actor, and this was very well-deserved. Michael V. Gazzo, who played Frank Pentangeli, and Lee Strasberg, who played Hyman Roth, were nominated here as well. But this was De Niro's year. We've come to see absolute brilliance from De Niro over the last 50 years, and this is probably the role that kickstarted it all. He's just simply brilliant. Al Pacino was nominated for Best Actor, but he didn't win. I'd like to take a minute and give him some props, though. We we watched him for decades, and he's he never shies away from playing characters that are ballsy and outspoken, even a little bit bombastic. I'm thinking of like Scarface or Dog Day Afternoon. Yet he plays Michael Corleone with a very quiet and almost gentle approach. It's a mob movie where people are killing each other for business purposes. And yet I can't recall, but maybe twice where Michael Corleone actually raises his voice above a normal conversational level. It could be by design. The writers could be trying to show the vast difference between Michael and Vito, for example. I couldn't even imagine anyone being in a room with Vito and having the nerve to raise their voice to him. We saw this in part one, where even Luca Brazzi was rehearsing what he was going to say because he was so nervous about misspeaking and running the risk of insulting the Don. Yet with Michael, we see Connie, Fredo, Kay, Frank, and even Senator Geary all openly disrespect him to his face, yelling at him or hurling insults at him. And what you see is very little reaction from Michael. Pacino plays this so perfectly. You just see his eyes suddenly get darker and the muscles in his face tense ever so slightly. And that's when you know he's not ever going to forget this. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, please do. If you're like me, part one left you with so many unanswered questions that you were just dying to get to part two. And I was rewarded. This movie not only shows you what happens to everyone in the future, which is really what I want at the end of every movie. You just can't help but wonder like what happened to what happened next? What happened to all of them? But this movie also gives you an amazing look back at how it all started and how they got to this point, which is definitely value added. The underlying theme remains consistent through both films. Vanquish the enemy, defend yourself and your family, and never, ever forget, ever, even if it's 25 years later, you go get your fucking revenge. It isn't over until you decide it is. It's very satisfying in the end, even though Vito and Michael Corleone are not good guys. They're not heroes, but you can't help but want to see them come out on top when all is said and done. And you'll end up dedicating nearly seven hours watching part one and part two of The Godfather, but it's worth every single minute. I highly recommend it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 12 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. If you have a comment, maybe I got some facts wrong, or you just want to tell me I have shit taste, you can email cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, 
they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.